for so many ladies I know who passed away just in a week of warfare and unfortunate events, well, I was which means to me that there is a very special message that God has that he's trying to communicate. That is usually the conclusion I come to. I'm not quite sure what it is, but we're going to dig in and see. So, uh, anyway, I have a joke to start things off on a humorous note. Okie dokie. A man, this isn't biblical, but it's pretty funny. A man was walking along a California beach deep in prayer. Suddenly the, the sky clouded over, and then these clouds parted, and he hears a voice from heaven, and it's the Lord, and he says, because you've tried to be faithful to me in so many ways, I'm going to grant you one wish. And the man said, oh good, build a bridge to Hawaii so I can drive over anytime I want. And the Lord said, well, that is a very materialistic request. Just think of the enormous challenges that would present for that kind of undertaking. It would have to build supports all the way to the bottom of the Pacific. Think of how much steel and concrete it would take. It will just take a lot of natural resources. Why don't you think of another request? I can't justify your, you know, all these worldly things. So just take a little more time and think of something that would honor and glorify me. So the man thought about it for a while and he said, finally, the Lord, I wish I could understand my wife. I want to know how she feels inside, what she's thinking when she gives me the silent treatment, why she cries, and what she means when she says nothing's wrong, how I can make her happy. And the Lord said, you want two lanes or four on that bridge? <laughs> Okay. Like I said, it wasn't biblical. I don't have a segue, so here we go into Second Samuel one. Now, as you know from our studies, that all First and Second Samuel were originally one book, and Chapter one is merely the continuation of the sad and disastrous story from 1 Samuel 31 where Israel is decimated by the Philistines on Mount Gilboa. Having been seriously wounded in the battle, Saul falls on his sword and kills himself rather than be found by the Philistines and slowly tortured to death. His son Jonathan is also killed. And it is a bleak time for God's people. It is a bleak time for David as well. He had become weary of trying to escape from Saul and his plots to kill him. So he sought refuge with his enemies, the Philistines. He successfully cons King Achish into believing that he's defected from Israel and is now fighting against Saul. And as the battle plans are finalized, the Philistine commanders hear of David's defection from Israel. Well, they don't believe this for a second, and they send him packing back to his hometown in Ziklag before the battle even starts. And after a three-day march, David and his men arrive home to find that the town has been burned to the ground by the Amalekites, and all of their wives and children and livestock have been taken captive. God miraculously intervenes, and David and his men rescue their families and possessions. And so that's kind of the backdrop as his journey continues second Samuel. And as we study this book, it's easy to think that this is a book about David the king. But I really want to challenge us to dig deeper and look more carefully. This is not about David. And it's not even about covenant kings. It is about a covenant God who makes covenant promises to his covenant king. 
through whom he is going to preserve his covenant people. This is a book that's about a God who is faithful to his promises, not just for the sake of his beloved people, but for the sake of his own name and glory. So the chapter breaks into two parts, and the first 16 verses are the news of Saul's death. David and his men had only been back in Ziklag for a couple of days, restoring the burned shells of their homes when an Amalekite stumbles into their midst. He had traced 80 miles to track down David to tell his story. And his torn garments and soil-caked hair telegraph the bad news he's going to share. They all knew the signs of warning. Something bad has happened. And by falling to the ground before David, he implies that he recognizes the new king and that he expects a reward for running to Ziklag with the latest news from Israel's camp. Now we need to remember at this point, David had no idea what happened on Mount Gilboa. So he asks, how did things go? Probably expecting the worst based on the man's appearance. Well, Israel was badly defeated. Many had died, including Saul and his son Jonathan, and the survivors had fled. And not really wanting to believe it, David asks for verification concerning the death of the king and his son. Well, hoping to ingratiate himself with the king, the Amalekite plunges into his story, anticipating a big reward. He happened to be on Mount Gilboa. He happened to find Saul leaning on his spear. He happened to see the chariots and horsemen closing in. He happened to hear Saul call to him and ask him to put him out of his misery. And he happened to know Saul couldn't live from his injuries. So he killed him and took the crown and the bracelet on Saul's arm and he brought them to David. Now, if you were here for our study of 1 Samuel last spring, you may remember that this isn't quite how the narrator told the story. So do we have two different versions of the death of King Saul? The answer is no. We have the narrator's description of what happened, and we have the Amalekite story of what happened. And the solution is simple. The Amalekite lied. The Amalekite lied. If you ever have a choice between the narrator and an Amalekite, you isolate the narrator. You just do. So there is a suspicious hole in the Malachite story, and David would have seen it at once. It is totally unlikely that Saul would have been so isolated in the thick of battle, without an armor bearer or any royal contingent by his side, that he would have had to depend on or even ask an Amalekite to administer the coup de grace. I think that what happened was having come upon Saul's body, uh, the Amalekite sees a great opportunity for himself. He will bring Saul's regalia to David, claim personally to have finished off the man known to be David's archenemy and rival, and thereby overcome his own marginal status as a resident alien or sojourner, and he would receive a handsome reward for the king and set himself up for life. This is like winning the lottery. How could he say that he slithered around like a coward, waiting for Saul to fall so that he could pounce on the royal crowd? And he couldn't really say that he was scavenging dead bodies on the battlefield either. And since this man really wanted a reward from David, he already had tangible proof that the king was dead. He had the crown and the armbands. So why not make himself the hero of the story? He made a deadly miscalculation, as we know. Well, on hearing the news, far from rejoicing, David tore his clothes, as did the men who were with him. They mourned and wept and fasted until evening. 
Saul was dead, Jonathan was dead, Israel had fallen by the sword, and there was nothing to celebrate. This was an epic disaster as far as David was concerned. And the grief of David and his men is impressive. The condition of the people of God disturbed them. And the same principle should control our life in the kingdom today as well. Should we not mourn over the unbelief, apostasy, and coldness in the church today? Should we not mourn over brothers and sisters who stumble in their faith and get slaughtered by the enemy? Should we not mourn over the prodigals in our families whose choices have broken our hearts? Or is our response more of the self-righteous smugness thinking, well, they had that coming, but what did they think was going to happen with all that fill-in-the-blank? Disobedience. You know, sowing and reaping, they sowed the flesh. They got what they deserved. We ought to be weeping for the death and destruction sin brings into the lives of God's people. And we ought to be weeping for the death and destruction it brings into our lives as well. In David's weeping, we see a picture of the covenant king who weeps over our sin. And we are appointed to the one who wept over our sin and left the glories of heaven to do something about it. Jesus chose to be destroyed by sin, so we don't have to be devoured by it. Well, David's interrogation of the Amalekite concludes. He wants to know where the young man is from, and he, the man repeats that he's a resident of Israel, the son of an alien. Uh, and as a resident, he could hardly plead ignorance to the whole situation. There was a certain amount of awe surrounding the king of Israel, and he surely would have known that David had stubbornly avoided putting Saul to death when he had the opportunity to do so on the grounds that Saul was the Lord's anointed. So David then orders the man to be put to death for killing the king. Your blood be upon your head. This means the blood you shed is really the cause of your own death. There is so much irony here. Saul lost his kingship for his refusal to utterly destroy the Amalekites as God had commanded. And David kills this Amalekite who claimed to have killed the anointed of the Lord. Well, to our minds, it seems very harsh and even unfair that this man was struck down and killed, merely telling a lie to make himself look better and get a reward. But we need to remember he shouldn't have even been there in the first place. If Saul had been obedient to God and totally annihilated all the Amalekites as he'd been instructed to do. And I think it may help if we look at the Amalekites as the way we view ISIS today. The Amalekites were a tribe first mentioned during the time of Abraham. Their unrelenting brutality toward the Israelites began at Rephidim, which is recounted in Deuteronomy. Uh, remember what the Amalekites did to you all along the way when you came out of Egypt. When you were weary and worn out, they met you on your journey and attacked all who were lagging behind. That would have been the women and the children. That's who they attacked. They had no fear of God. And when the Lord your God gives you rest from all the enemies around you in the land, he's giving you to possess as an inheritance, blot out the name of Amalek from under heaven. Don't forget. So the Amalekites later joined the Canaanites and attacked Israel. Then they banded together with the Moabites and the Midianites. They were continually waging war on Israel. They were responsible for the repeated destruction 
of the Israelites' land and their food supply. So in 1 Samuel uh, 15, God tells Saul, I will punish the Amalekites for what they did to Israel when they awaited them when they came up from Egypt. Go attack the Amalekites and totally destroy everything that belongs to them. Do not spare them. Put to death men, women, children, infants, cattle, sheep, camels, and donkeys. Everything. Well, why was this destruction to be so complete? The men, women, children, and infants were all bound together in their hatred of Israel. They had evil and wicked hearts, which manifested in wicked and evil deeds against a crisis. They are bent on destroying the world, except for people who believe exactly as they do. It would have worked to just destroy the men who are bent on annihilating anybody who agrees with them. No, the wives and children are just as involved in promulgating this evil. Well, where do you think they got the cattle, sheep, and donkeys that were also to be destroyed? They got it by killing other people and stealing their possessions. And that is why God wanted the livestock destroyed as well. He did not want offerings that were obtained by killing people to steal their animals. Well, as you know, King Saul does attack the Amalekites, but he does not complete the task. And he allows King Agag to live, but he, and he takes the plunder for himself and his army. Then he lies about his reason for doing so. Saul's rebellion against God and his command is so serious that he is rejected by God as king. So these escaped Amalekites continue to harass and plunder the Israelites in successive generations. Their hatred of the Jews and their repeated attempts to destroy God's people ultimately led to their doom, and they were blotted off the face of the earth, but it took a while. So in killing this man, back to our story, David was being obedient in a way that Saul never was. Our covenant God is very serious about protecting his covenant people. When he asks us to destroy sin in our lives, it is for our own good. When we partially obey, the very thing God tries to protect us from often comes back and wreaks havoc in our lives. Have you noticed that? It does. Not only does our covenant God protect his covenant people, our covenant God is also going to place his anointed king on the throne in his own time and his own way. How graciously ironic of the Lord to have an enemy bring the royal crown and armband of Saul to David. This made it clear to everyone that David was not responsible for Saul's death. He had not murdered Saul to claim the throne. So consequently, the genuineness of David's grief was never in doubt. It was genuine. And that brings us to the lament he wrote, which is the second part of the chapter from verses 17 to 27. Uh, 17 says that David chanted with this lament over Saul and Jonathan, his son. Now we can understand his brokenness over Jonathan, who was the kindred spirit, who gave up his right to the throne, who saved David's life repeatedly, who encouraged him in the Lord, and who was closer than a brother. But if you're like me, you're asking yourself the question, how could David really grieve over Saul? How could he do that? After all, it was out of pure jealousy, hatred, spite, and ungodliness that David took, that Saul took away 
David's family, his home, his career, his security, and really the best years of his life. And Saul was utterly unrepentant until the end, even to the end. Yet David mourned and wept and fasted when he learned of Saul's death. One commentator said such a magnanimous attitude on the part of one who has suffered so much at Saul's hands is incomprehensible apart from a deep commitment to the Lord. David's grief would not have been genuine if he had not forgiven Saul completely. Let me say it again. David's grief would not have been genuine if he had not forgiven Saul completely. His life, David's life, clearly demonstrates the principle that bitterness and unforgiveness are something we choose. They are not forced upon us. I know you've probably heard this, but it's true. Unforgiveness is a poison you drink, hoping the other person will die. David kept his heart free from hatred and sin by continually forgiving his enemy. And it was only because of his great trust in God and his power that David could do this. Does David's gracious forgiveness of his enemy remind you of anyone? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And yet again, we are graced in this um, passage with another glimpse of our sin-bearing, covenant-keeping God. David's grief was genuine. But David, as the future king of Israel, is not content to merely mourn. He wants there to be a purpose in the mourning. So he instructs them to teach the sons of Judah the song of the bow. David wants his people to learn and remember the significance of the history that's been enacted on Mount Gilboa. This would have been a poem that they memorized and recited together. It was probably set to music. They would have sung it. And it was, it was meant to be a reminder of the horrible consequences of disobedience to God. David intends this to be part of their motivational military training. Gilboa was not the last time Israel would fight the Philistines, and David wanted his men to remember the tragedy, the pagan arrogance, and he wanted them to be ready and motivated for the next time. You know, sometimes in our lives we have wonderful memorial stones to remind us of God's faithfulness and provision. But other times we need memorials like the Song of the Bow that remind us of the devastating consequences of sin. Not so we will live in guilt, but so we will learn and understand the blessings of obedience and submission. This lament became well-known and was part of Israel, Israel's culture. It was written down in the book of Jashar, which was a collection of early Hebrew poetry. It's also mentioned, in, uh, as you learned, in Joshua chapter 10. Well, from reading of the Psalms, we know that David was a skilled songwriter and poet, and the Song of the Bow was written in Hebrew, which makes it a bit difficult to understand because our English translations uh, uh, don't adequately convey the thoughts and feelings and the subtleties of the poem's structure and words. And even the title, The Song of the Bow, is, is a bit mysterious. Many commentators that I read thought, think that the bow referred to the weapon that Jonathan gave to David back in 1 Samuel chapter 18 when he gave him his robe and abdicated the throne. So David laments, your beauty, O Israel, is slain on your high places. And this phrase is also translated, your glory is slain on your high places. 
And the Hebrew word for beauty or glory had a secondary meaning of gazelle. And the gazelles would have been the animals that reached the highest places, the safest places, and normally they would be the last to be conquered. How the mighty have fallen is simple to understand and evokes the horrors of defeat in battle. The phrase is a refrain and it's repeated again in verses 25 and 27. And David doesn't say it explicitly, but we all understand that Saul fell long before this. He fell when he hardened his heart against God, against the word of God through his prophet Samuel, and he hardened his heart against David, a man after God's own heart. So Saul's death on Gilboa was really the sad conclusion of a fall that had happened a long time ago. Tell it not in Gath, proclaim it not in the streets of Ashkelon, or the daughters of the Philistines will rejoice, the daughters of the uncircumcised will exult. And though he had been living among the Philistines, all of David's sympathies were with Israel. And he could not bear to dwell on the thought that the news being conveyed to the Philistine cities would be met with excited rejoicing. He could picture the welcome home and the women singing and dancing in praise of the victorious Philistine warriors the very same way that the Israelite women had welcomed David home after the defeat of Goliath that the uncircumcised should exult over the defeat of Israel, and by extension, Israel's God was too painful to contemplate. So David calls for a double calamity to befall Mount Gilboa, so that its landscape mourns in sympathy by becoming dry and unproductive. He didn't want those fields to produce grain that would be used to honor the Philistine God, Dagon, ever again. Well, having called for drought on the Gilboa Hills, David at last names the king who has lost his life there. He finally mentions Saul and says that his shield was defiled. It was not anointed with oil. What David could not bring himself to say about the king, he can say of the shield. It was defiled with blood and the dirt of war, and it was not anointed with oil. Now, oiling the shield was a common practice they think slippery was their version of Teflon, I guess, and it caused missiles to glance off, but um, David says that the shield was not anointed with oil. So this paints the picture of a consecrated person who died a common death, as though he'd never been set apart by the as the anointed of Jehovah. How very, very sad. David was generous to Saul, his sworn enemy, Saul was his father-in-law, his sovereign, and the anointed of the Lord, and therefore, though he had done a great deal of wrong, David does not wreak his revenge upon his memory when he is in his grave, but like a good man and a man of honor, he conceals his faults, and though there was no preventing their appearance in history, yet they should not appear in this elegy. Matthew Henry said that. David does not slander Saul, even though he had a thousand reasons to do so. Writing hundreds of years later, the Apostle Paul put it simply, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Philippians, Ephesians 4.31 Covenant people are called to a higher standard. Well, from the blood of the slain and from the fat of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan did not turn back and the sword of Saul did not return empty. 
Memories of Jonathan and Saul at the height of their powers come flooding back. They had been courageous in battle. They were successful and brought rich spoils from the battle, and it improved the lives of the people. The women had clothing, all those things we read about. Saul and Jonathan, beloved and pleasant in their life, and in their death they were not parted. They were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. And David almost changes his poem into a victory song as he contemplates how deeply beloved these two great men had been. He faces reality again by mentioning the word death. And he finds cause for praise in the togetherness of father and son, which the enemy has not been able to destroy. Now this is a bit of an ideal remembrance since Saul twice was on the verge of killing Jonathan, but nonetheless, he offers this praise. And then in verses 24, the first part of 25, David focuses in specifically on Saul and calls on the daughters of Israel to weep for him. This is quite the contrast to keeping the news away from the daughters of the Philistines who would rejoice at Saul's death. And then we get to the real heart of things in the second part of verse 25 and verse 26. Jonathan is slain on your high places. I'm distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. You've been very pleasant to me. Your love was more wonderful than the love of women. So at the beginning of this section, the identity of thy glory or thy beauty that we first read about in verse 19 is revealed. The gazelle or the jewel of Israel was Jonathan. And David speaks directly to him now, the one he's wanted to honor from the very beginning. And for the very first time in the poem, he uses a first-person verb, I, and now I am distressed for you. And the death of Jonathan was really the first and last subject of the entire poem. And while David had called on others to weep for Saul, David was consumed himself with grief for Jonathan, my brother, whom he addresses as if he were still living. David had never experienced such love as Jonathan had shown him. He didn't need to spell it out for him because everyone knew that Jonathan, the heir to the throne, had not clung to his rights, but had voluntarily renounced them in favor of David, whom he had protected and encouraged through the years. And this, no, this renunciation had been no impulsive act, but an ongoing, generous attitude of heart and mind. Jonathan had allowed his own interests to be disregarded in order that David could prosper. Does Jonathan's sacrifice remind you of anyone? And again, we have a picture of Jesus who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Now, I know it's fashionable today to twist scripture, but it is utterly wrong to read the idea of homosexuality into this text is something today, and I need to address this. The comparison between Jonathan's love and a wife's love is not about sexuality. It is about fidelity. And while David had found love in the women of his life, and I hasten to add, way too many women, uh, even their love was not to be compared with the love which had motivated Jonathan, who gave up his claim to the throne for his friend. How the mighty have fallen and the weapons of war perish, David has spoken to Jonathan and now he must face reality. Jonathan is among the mighty fallen. The battle is over. Well, this is the poem that David wanted all Judah to know by heart. 
All the great families in Judah had a place in this lament because they had supplied their own mighty men to fight alongside Saul and Jonathan, and so it became their lament as well. And as the mourning women wept for their own sons and husbands, so they would weep for the king and his son. And thus concludes the lament that David wanted them to never forget. It's interesting to note that David never mentions the name of God, nor does he suggest that God's providence has had any part in the events he commemorates. That would, in the circumstances, be totally inappropriate, but his silence is just as eloquent as his words. And at a suitable time, David will express with full conviction his assurance of God's faithfulness in guiding him throughout his life. In fact, all you have to do is read the Psalms to know that. Saul's reign has now concluded, and David's is about to begin. So my question is, what do we learn about our covenant God? One, God keeps his word. God tore the kingdom from Saul because of his pride and rebellion, and he anointed David as king, and he ultimately will become king of Israel. Two, God's timing is not our timing. I bet you've learned that one. Um, David was anointed when Saul was still on the throne, and it would be many years before David's time came. David understood that the Lord places kings upon their thrones, and it was not his job to play God and remove Saul. Three, God weeps over the sin of his people. When we sin, God is not in heaven taunting us about our failures. He is brokenhearted. And the corollary to this is that as covenant people, we should weep over sin in our lives and in the lives of those we know and love. Sin's destructiveness may not be as obvious as thousands slain on Mount Gilboa, but it is certainly deadly. David would have wanted nothing more than for Saul to repent and humble himself under the mighty hand of God. For God provides for the sin of his people. Instead of killing his enemies, Jesus loved them and died for them. Instead of claiming his rights to the throne of the universe, Jesus humbled himself to the point of death on a cross. He did that for you and me and all who place their faith in him. Have you trusted him? So the application. Just a few questions to think about uh, as we wrap up. One, are you waiting on God's timing? Keep waiting. Keep trusting. Two, oh, I hate this one. Have you forgiven your enemies? You know, is there someone who is trying to make your life miserable? Who's got somebody trying to make your life miserable? Forgive them. Is there someone who's trying to destroy you? Got somebody in the family? Forgive them. Is there someone uh, who just irritates you? <laughs> Constantly. Forgive them. Are you drinking the cup? and poison of unforgiveness. Put the cup down. Put it down. Pray. You speak badly about those people who are your enemies. Oh, gosh, why are you doing this to me? <laughs> or what about those people who annoy and frustrate you? You speak badly about them. Or is Jesus your example, who, while being reviled, did not revile in return, and while suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. Four, do you make excuses for your sin? Do you make excuses for your sin? 
You're not the only one. Do you obey when it suits you? Partial obedience is disobedience. Can you be honest with yourself and God? Can you be honest about it? Five, are you the kind of friend that Jonathan was to David? Are you someone who sticks closer than a brother or a sister? Oh, ladies, there is so much to learn, so much to ponder from this lesson in unexpected places. Let's pray. I thank you that you are a covenant-keeping God. And I thank you that when you saw us in the state we were in, you did something about it. You didn't leave us to suffer and die. But you came and you rescued us, and I thank you. I pray that, Lord, you'd help us love our enemies. I pray you'd do it through us. I pray that we'd forgive. I pray that... That we could let go of the bitterness that consumes us. Lord, I pray that, that you would teach us all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.